Hey, if you're listening, it is Toph here from the Next Gen Movement, and we are here with Chapter 30 with Sharon Draper. Very stoked to have Sharon on the podcast because she is a psychologist, something that I love talking about and just understanding the brain and, I guess, mental health, especially in today's age. Uh, With Sharon, she's known for her evidence-based approaches. I won't go through them all, but some of them include like mindfulness, neuropsychology, CBT, which is also known as cognitive behavioral therapy, and there's a lot of um, play and art therapy included as well. So as well as being involved with like relationship um, psychology with eHarmony, she also works with kids um, in a different way. She's a children's book author, and she's written books on anxiety and grief to help kids um, have tools um, to move on through those kind of hardships. So enjoy the chapter. Um, Let us know what you think. Um, If there's a certain thing that resonated with you, take a screenshot, share on Insta and and LinkedIn and any other socials and be sure to tag us and Sharon and uh, have a great damn purpose. Thank you. Welcome to Next Gen Movement, our sole mission to empower tomorrow's leaders by harnessing and unleashing collective wisdom, lessons and experiences of thought leaders within the community. Welcome to the Next Gen Movement podcast. It's Toph here and I'm currently with my co-host RJ as we're about to go under the surface with our next chapter featuring Sharon Draper. She is a psychologist who works with children, teens, and adults using a number of different types of evidence-based approaches, such as neuropsychology, mindfulness, cognitive behavioral therapy, also known as CBT, and as well as play and art therapy. She's also a children's book author and an eHarmony psychologist. And it's people like Sharon that we're grateful to have on the podcast, helping us understand more of the human mind, what makes us triggered, and essentially be better people, especially through times of disarray. Welcome, Sharon. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. (laughs) Now, uh, there's something, how I want to open up with this is something that hits me home, um, just because I do tend to struggle with anxiety. Um, I have my entire life, and I'm grateful for, like, the breathing techniques and the meditation I have to help me get through. But um, when I came across your journey, something about how I saw that you've written children's books, like I think one was to help kids through, work through their anxiety and yeah. another one to uh, providing strategies to work through sadness and loss. Um, I think that's powerful because I never really had the tools growing up. Um, and something like this, I think is very empowering that you've, that you've written books on these topics. Um, mm. Was there a particular reason why you wanted to write these books? Yes, um, for that very reason. So many clients of mine who are adults um, didn't really know what they were experiencing because people don't really talk about it um, or they don't talk about sort of um, the uncomfortable feelings because they don't believe that they should be feeling these things. I think, you know, it's changed quite a lot. So I think there are a lot of people that are more aware younger now, like schools also are more aware of what anxiety is and things like that. But um, I was wanting to really target people who, you know, 
who are young so that they can start learning the skills really early. And um, just reflecting on my own journey, I was, a, well, and I am, but I was a very anxious child and um, I didn't have any of those skills either. So um, it, was, it was more just a recognition that, wow, if people, you know, we were trying to learn strategies now as adults, but imagine if we actually had a lot of these or at least just awareness of what it is so you don't feel so alone in it. And then some really easy and practical strategies to use um, from an early age. I mean, and you just keep adding layers to the strategies and coping mechanisms. I just thought how wonderful, you know, to try and um, just, just help people um, in general. And I think if you learn from a young age about this stuff of what you're feeling, then then you're likely to help other people as well. And then your own children and their children's children. So it's just an ongoing process, I think. So yeah, I really wanted to just target people that were very young um, to try and help them from, from, you know, at that stage of their lives. It's, an, it's a really relevant topic for myself. So I've got a three-year-old and a eight-week-old. And last night, my wife and I were actually talking about uh, our son. We had a long drive yesterday was 10 hours and our son did well but he really started acting out towards the end and he just kind of went into maniac mode mm. and i kind of oscillate between drill sergeant dad and as well as fun dad and um mm. and we're trying to be very conscious as to not wrapping our templates around how we grew up and our dysfunctional behavior in our children. And so it was mm -hmm. funny because my wife was talking about something she heard uh, on one of Brene Brown's talks last night. I put her on to her, Toph put me on to her. Yeah. And I just wanted to ask you, how formative really are those one to six year old, um, I suppose, ages? and is it difficult to really unpack the lessons or some of the negative things that children learn at that age over the course of their life? So, oh, great question. Okay. <laughs> um, I think those formative years are extremely important, but I think what's really important, I love that you said that you're trying not to sort of impart your own understanding of your childhood experience with your parents. Um, impose that onto your child um, because I think that's where parents have a responsibility is to understand themselves and understand their triggers and also understand that their relationship with their parents um, might not have been the relationship that you really needed um, and not to blame parents you know like I said before um, if you have to look at the context of what our parents grew up in their parents grew up in um, and that's why I think people nowadays are more open to understanding emotions, but I work with all kinds of ages and there's still a disconnect with their parents, even though their parents are quite young, some of my, my younger clients. So um, I think it's, yes, those years are so important um, and it is possible to make change. I mean, I believe, I wouldn't do what I do if I didn't believe that people could change. Um, and there's so much research about the brain being plastic, you know, you can actually make changes. But, um, but what I also wanna really kind of this drive home is to try not be perfect and don't think you're always messing up as a parent because there's so much I'm sure you've experienced um, just shame and blame and you just always feel guilty. <laughs> you all, know? The time. Oh. all the time, all the time. Laying in bed, reflecting, have I, 
have I fucked him up for life? You know what I'm saying? You know what I mean? Because I took that toy away. <laughs> totally. No, I can imagine. And I speak to a lot of parents and they say the same thing. And I think that's the important thing. You know, as people, humans, we tend to do all or nothing always. Or everything's all or nothing. So if we're not perfect parents, then we're terrible. Um, and it's not true. That isn't true. And actually, there's a lot of research now because I love attachment science. And I'd encourage everybody to try and understand attachment science. It's all about understanding the attachment that you had with your main caregiver as a, and, and now then you the next attachment that you have is with your partner and then your next attachment would be with your friends as well but but then with your children. So if you can understand your own attachment that you had as a, as a child with the main caregiver um, and then recognize what kind of attachment you have because you have different kinds, there's secure attachment there's, um, and then there's insecure attachment, which has avoidance and ambivalent. I'll go into the details of that just now, but I still want to answer your question. I've yeah. still got it. <laughs> um, but I think that's really, really, really important. If you can understand what attachment means and what your relationship is or your style of attachment, then you can learn how to have more or develop more of a secure attachment with your child. But the important point is it's not so much about um, attuning to your child all the time. So with attachment, basically they talk about attunement. So if your child cries, you go to it and try to work out what it needs. And you know that it's like, hey, it's a guessing game usually. But sometimes you might start getting to know what certain cries sound like. Maybe, you know, it needs a nappy change or it's just tired, whatever it is. But you're not always going to know. But it's not so much about always being attuned to your child or even your partner, because I work with relationships too. But it's about when there's a misattunement or a rupture in your relationship with that person, whether it's your child or your partner or your parent, it's about the repair. It's about trying to repair it. So I've actually got a book, which I still, I'm a terrible, I buy books all the time and I don't always read them. Audio books, man. Oh man, I do. I've got audiobooks as well. <laughs> <laughs> Constant. I think there's a, there's a Japanese word for it, like sundaku or something, where it's like, you just keep a you know, buying more and more books. But um, there's a book called The Power of Discord. And there's a lot of research based on how you only really need to attune to a significant person in your life, whether that's a child or a partner, like something like 30% of the time. So it's not even that much. Right. But, but it's about the repair. Yeah, or, right. Yeah, it's about how you resolve conflict. It's not about not having conflict. Yeah. So I don't know if that really answered your question. Yeah, no, no, it, it does. And, and, and Tope, I'll, I'll let you dive into the next question because I'll, I'm going to unpack that a little bit more right. as well. Yeah. yeah. Perfect. Yeah. That whole attachment thing, I remember reading the book. I think it's Dr. Amir Levine. Yes. I'm wrong. Amazing book. It really was really insightful because, yeah, you've got the secure side of things, but with the quadrant, I remember there was anxious, mm. avoidant, and then anxious avoidance. <laughs> and... <laughs> Even noticing how I was in like my very first proper relationship, mm. I, after that happened, I became really avoidance because I noticed that I didn't want to get hurt. So I was going into things with loose, it was quite loose. And for a long time, I became, I couldn't commit to relationships because I didn't want to get hurt again. Mm. And obviously, like I, over time, I realized a lot of my own insecurities of what drove that behavior. And I'm very grateful in the relationship I'm in. It's definitely mm. uh, the best relationship I've been in and we're teaching ourselves a lot. Mm. Um, so uh, yeah, that just hit me home because I'm like, I remember reading that book several mm. times about what was going on. That, 
I'm, I'm still trying to figure out how to do attachment in, in real life and like in other aspects of life, for example. Um, and I, I'm curious to know from maybe from like a work environment, mm. um, Sharon, like yeah. I, I know that where your job is to help people feel they're in a safe space and especially having your clients feel heard and approaching them in a non-judgmental point of view. Yeah. Um, that's pretty much what we're trying to achieve with this podcast. So that I guess mm. having those really vulnerable and empowering conversations with amazing guests like yourself, with yourself, like mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm really curious how, this can be transferred to potentially like a toxic work and work environment, toxic work culture, where it's hard to feel safe in those type of environments. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it can be really, really tricky in those kinds of environments because there's a lot more, well, not even a lot more at stake, but there's a lot at stake, you know, where you feel like your job is could be on the line if you speak up or whatever it is. But it's interesting um, that sometimes bosses can also be kind of, parental type figures as well that can really trigger us without us realizing and i think it's important to really know yourself and be aware of what your triggers are and then recognize whether you're able to put boundaries in place as well and recognizing that a boundary isn't like a concrete wall you know of no it's about negotiation about saying what you need um, and then hoping that you and you're saying it in a way that hopefully it will be received. Um, but I'm very aware that obviously there's some, you know, certain personalities, very ego type personalities in certain organizations as well. I do a lot of workers' compensation um, cases and there's a lot of bullying that happens around that, which I think is very tricky. Um, but it is up to us to be able to recognize what it is that we need in a reasonable way in the, given the context of work, but being able to speak about it. So I find a lot of people don't know what boundaries are. They don't know what their boundaries should be. <laughs> and then they expect other people to um, meet their needs or their wants without really knowing what our own needs and wants are and without actually communicating what those are to other people. So, I mean, that needs to happen in the workplaces as well of being able to recognize what's important to you. How do you work well or optimally? And then being able to communicate that with people in your team or your boss or whoever it is that's, that's important to you. Um, There's also, I don't know if you've heard of the five languages of love. Yep. Yeah, there's a there's a you know easy quiz online that you can do in like five minutes. That's more about relationships, like your personal relationships. But there's also a five languages of appreciation at the workplace, which is also a quiz that you can do, and um, it it recognizes how people feel validated and connected in the workplace. And I think it's quite a helpful um, exercise to do with with organizations because then they can really learn about each other and what each other needs in order to be able to work well together. Yeah, so I think that's tricky. Sorry. I was going to say, do do you think, speaking of validation, do you think Mm -hmm. that can necessarily not be a good thing because it's always relying on third party, anything external? Do you reckon it's, how do you rely more on that internal validation when that supported accountability that's needed as well? Absolutely. No, you're 100% correct with that because I think a lot of the problem that I see is a lot of people expect others to always validate themselves. They always need external validation Um, and you often will just get, most of the time will get disappointed and then you have expectations, like I said, that aren't very clear but then you know, the person doesn't actually meet those needs. It's all about your own ability to meet the needs. And then if you get something extra from a relationship, then it's pretty much the cherry on the top. And I think that's really important, that frame to have when you're in any relationship um, is to, like, for example, I find a lot of people um, 
struggle with, oh, that person hasn't phoned me or the person didn't ask how my day was. And I encourage them, well, if you want to talk about your day, tell them about your day. <laughs> tell them how it was, you know, rather than expecting them to always ask you. So don't be afraid to reach out to people just because they haven't contacted you for X amount of time. Usually you haven't contacted them either during that time. So it's really important to use those, build up your own internal validation, recognize, you know, have self-compassion and build on that all the time because you're always going to be triggered and always have doubts and there's always going to be guilt and there's, then there's going to be shame. That's just a natural part of humans. You know, we overthink everything. And a lot of it is related to how we might have felt growing up as a child, feeling helpless or um, dismissed or things like that. Often it does come from there or gets cultivated there. But I think if you can build on your own reserves, you're not having to expect much from other people as, as much as what you think you need. Um, and then, like I said, anything that is... Um, uh, positive it's actually a cherry on the top but having said that I think it's still important to be able to be clear about what it is that you need in order to like help yourself so in a working environment for example um, like I, I've, I've worked at different places so I've been in a um, psychology clinic and I quite I, I prefer one-on-ones I mean hence why I, I do the work that I do a main one mainly one-on-ones not like group work as such but um, I found quite like I'm quite anxious to speak up in front of other people um, and so if I could let my boss or my manager know that sometimes I might need more one-on-ones as opposed to group work all the time, then that would help. So that's what I mean by being clear about what it is you need, not really having your, all your needs met by someone else. It's more just about, hey, this is what works for me. Is this possible? And have a negotiation with the person. And um, I find any relationship you have, it's all about learning, learning about yourself and learning about the other so that you can keep building that connection. I, I think... There's so much in that. I think that the piece on having the vulnerability, because ultimately that's what it is, vulnerability and courage mm -hmm. to like when that person hasn't called you to, to reach out to that person, because the narrative that most of us will tell ourselves is that we're being neglected and having the awareness and perspective to not bow down to those negative types of narratives and, and, and challenge that I think is really important and where vulnerability and self-awareness comes in. And there, you guys talk about so much stuff. I was just taking notes. I think coming, I'm in the recovery community. Um, so I'm recovering, I'm a recovering alcoholic, recovering addict. And one of the things that I see that is profound with people that are afflicted with addiction, especially when they're newly sober, is when you start to unpack their family of origin, first of all, you, you, you see dysfunctional relationships are like prolific throughout their lives. They, an, an addict or an alcoholic never seems to have a right-sized relationship. There's either some form of love addiction, avoidance there's no real healthy form of boundaries and they generally don't know if they're coming or going in any relationship whether it be intimate friendships or whatever and I'm, i've always wondered and there's been work done on this i think johan hari is mm. talked about some of this stuff in his work uh, on on the power of um um connection and i would ask you conversely what's your view on addiction and 
relationships and maybe the um, unhealthy types of attachment that might have formed in the formative years. Do you think there's something there to be said around the, the, the relationship between addiction and attachment? Because what I see is always, always um, in these addicts' lives and alcoholics' lives is just relationships that seem to be dysfunctional. Absolutely. I, I agree 100%. And, and, you know, if you actually kind of expand it to any kind of um, mental health issue, it's relationship disconnect or dysfunction that is the cause. Um, that's just what they're seeing more and more because we're social beings. So I agree with you for sure. And I think what's really important too, I'm also very interested in polyvagal theory. I don't know if, if you've no, heard read it. much about it. It's <clears throat> Stephen Porges is um, somebody who kind of came up with a theory where it's pretty much about our nervous system and about how we regulate our nervous system. And, you know, the different states, the, the fight, flight, freeze states, but then also that kind of content, calm space or state. Um, and when we're children, we need to learn to co-regulate. So we need to learn from a parent, an adult, that the way we can um, manage and regulate our emotions is by modeling what they do. And if you have a parent that's absent, maybe they're physically there, but they're absent emotionally, or you know, they sometimes they say sometimes not, or they're abusive, you're never going to learn how to regulate your own nervous system because you can't do it as a child. You need an adult. Um, or an older sibling, at least. But even then, it's it's best as an adult, obviously, because you know we're growing forever. But you know, it's like twenty five. Your brain really kind of forms up until. Um, but I think that's so important. And if you don't have that model to regulate yourself, you learn how to regulate yourself in a way that isn't um, optimal or healthy because your brain hasn't developed yet, or you don't have experience to actually learn what you need to do. So there's a disconnect from the start. From the start. Um, if you don't have that model of learning how to regulate your emotions. And with that, um, it's not so much about always being content or happy. I find I've got quite a lot of clients who kind of always want to be happy. And <laughs> like I've had people say that to me, I just, I just want to be happy. I don't want to feel anxious anymore. And it's like, wow, it just, it's impossible. <laughs> There's no it's magic. It's a very but dangerous view. Absolutely. And also, I don't know um, if you've heard of Susan David, she talks about, yeah. she's got a book called Emotional Agility. Yeah, emotional and, agility. Yeah. Mm. And it's fantastic. And she, um, you know, there's no such thing as a bad emotion or a negative emotion. It just is an, an emotion. And it's an emotion that yeah. is, you know, try and understand the meaning under it. When you feel something, it's normal to feel something. Sadness is important. Anger is important. It's telling you something. But if we can learn that and learn that an emotion is just an emotion, it's okay to feel this way then and trying to understand it and get to, to be able to regulate them and move through those states. It's not about always being in that calm state. That's mm -hmm. impossible. It's about going through that um, sympathetic state and then to the calm state. It constantly moves up and down. And that's what regulation is, is just experiencing all different states. Mm -hmm. But um, back to your question, I definitely believe that it's all about relationships because we're social beings. Um, yeah. Yeah. Can I just ask you, to I'm just chime in on the back of this question, on, on the back of your answer. Um, I, I have a mentor who's a uh, psychotherapist, but he also is a, a, a teacher of Vedanta, which is uh, kind of, uh, it's, it's from the Vedas, and, and I, I, I study under him. And one of the things he says is that in Western psychology, 
we tend to be obsessed with our fixing the psychology. Whereas one of the interesting views in Vedanta, which it, it, it aligns with what you're saying, is that they take the, the, the emotions and our state of mind and the way that's playing out to be simply the natural order of things. And they're not, as, they're not concerned with managing any of that. But simply being alive to it is a fact to be appreciated to the extent that I'm overwhelmed with anger. I don't split my psychology. I don't try to push it away. I simply am alive to the fact. And that's nothing to be guilty of. It's like the tides coming in and out. Mm -hmm. And I simply sit with it and it dissipates. Yes. And it is one of the most prolific in, in simplest things that because I've done a lot of study and it's taken me a lot of time mm -hmm. to realize that how simplistic things can be my my question to you is is there a, a a place or is there is do you think there's a limit to diving into unpacking all of our causes and conditions or do you think that there's maybe a place for some of that but also leaving that where it is in the past what's your view on that uh, also a great question um i think it's so important that we have a well, I, and this is our personal belief yeah, yeah. with my work. Okay, um, I believe that it you know we're meaning making a meaning making species, so we try to make sense of everything in our world. Um, and if we feel like we've got control, then we feel more, um, or if we understand, sorry, then we feel like we have control. And there's you know, it needs to be balanced. So I like what you said. I think it's really important that we don't avoid feelings, but we also don't immerse ourselves and identify with every single emotion we've ever had or done, uh, actions that we've done. We can't identify or we shouldn't identify with that. We should recognize it's a natural human emotion or, a hum or I made a mistake and people make mistakes, but what have I done to try and overcome that? You know, it's, it's done in a compassionate way and that there's flow. I think um, Dan Siegel is another person who I just love. If any, if you don't know much about him, I just highly encourage you to watch his videos, read his books. Um, he talks about um, a river as an analogy of a flowing river, you know, and that's where we should be because there's a balance in it. But some, there are two banks on either side of the river. And the one is rigidity and the other one's chaos. And often humans get stuck on either being too rigid so this is the rule and therefore I need to do that. And if you deviate, oh, then, you know, you're a terrible person. Um, or this is chaotic and then that's like all the anxiety around everything. So I think it's really important to have an understanding of yourself, understand what triggers you, but not in a way to, okay, now I know my triggers, now I'm going to be in control of it. Not, not for that reason. It's just to have an understanding, to learn about yourself, to recognize you're human, and then to be able to try and um, not get stuck in that in a shameful way. And I say that obviously it's, it's easier said than done because we often do like, oh, but then why do I feel this way? And why did that happen? And why did I do that? It's about dipping your toes into it to have a bit of an understanding. Like, for example, if you can understand your attachment style, if you can understand why your parents might have parented you that way, having a bit of an understanding of, wow, okay, in not in an emotionally reactive way, more in an objective way and go, wow, okay, my, my dad, my, first, this is true, my dad is a, an accountant who is the financial provider. I don't remember him 
at all in my childhood, you know. <laughs> but if I look back, and, I, and that's the thing that's affected me, um, I've been working on that myself personally. But, um, but then I recognized, okay, but he's also from that era where he, men or the dads weren't really that involved. So it wasn't necessarily that he chose not to be a part of my upbringing. I don't think he knew that he should, or maybe he thought it was the wife's place, you know. So if I can have an understanding in that way, I can at least give him more love as well and compassion rather than, oh, he didn't do this thing for me. He wasn't the dad I needed. So I think having an understanding without getting hooked on it or stuck is important so that you can move on and just have awareness. You know what it is? It's just about awareness. So yeah, I agree with you in so many ways with that. Because you can identify with what it is. Mm. So that you're a victim. You've got you've got a responsibility yes. to not be stuck in that. Yeah. Yeah. I resonate with what you're talking about, your parents, because I um my mum is so I'm half Filipino and I was born in New Zealand, but I was raised in Australia. And mum is the oldest of five. Um and she lost her dad and she was like almost like a caregiver to the uh, her other siblings. And even today, mum's like, if I fall over, for example, she's like, are you okay? Do you need me to? Like, she's like, <laughs> like classic mum, but she's like the best mum. Like when, if any of like my mates come around, like she'll look after them. Like she's as if like that's their kids as well. Um, and I always got a lot of touch and everything from mum. Like she's um, like what I perceive as what a typical mum is. And then dad, on the other hand, um, dad's, almost like two generations older than me, he um, didn't really have like that. And I, it fascinates me how like dad only knows best because of like what his parents taught him and then what mm -hmm. his and then and so on and so forth. But it, it took me a long time. Like I carried a lot of judgment around my dad in particular. But now I've, I've learned to do some work on that thanks to the men's work I do and realize I had carried a lot of, um, I carried a burden on me because of like what I expected from like what society should have been and all that. So I try and tell my dad I love him as much as I can now. And even the other day, like I was chatting to him and I'm like, I see a best friend in my dad, which is so beautiful to say that. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so that, that's kind of like, that hit me just before when you were saying that, because mm -hmm. even today, like my natural attachment style is probably anxious. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just, mm. I know that because that's may, may be, have been the way I've been modeling and kind mm. of detachment that has been a mission in itself, just because I know my, my head can go a million miles per hour. And even what you're saying before on like happiness, sometimes like, it's like, what is the point of being happy if the negative can always overpower that? And I, I'm curious to know like how, I know that sometimes if I'm in a terrible state, I just want to stay there. I don't want to get out because I know that the hurt of being out of happiness can just be more painful. Yeah. Mm. And, and sorry, do you want me to comment on that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Cause I, sometimes like even with stuff that's going on this year and I'm just, I'm just keeping it real as well. Sometimes I've probably been more on the anxious, like more of, chronic anxiety and it's times of the sadness is just a bit too much i've cried more this year than i have any other year i've been angry more this year than any other year but just of some personal stuff mm. um and times like why should i be happy if 
it's there's no point of being in there. There is some that that is some, one of the stories I tell myself. Yes, sure. And and um, not to dismiss what you're going through, but I hear a lot of that, and especially this year, I feel like the whole um, control or freedom the restrictions that we've had to deal with has exacerbated a lot of people's stuff. Um, just everything seems to be like next level. Um, but I think you're right. I've had quite a few clients who talk about this as well, or just people that I speak to um, about being in that sad space and actually wanting to stay there. And a lot of the time, I mean, I hear what you're saying with regards to what's the point. And obviously that's quite a negative frame to be in where you can't see um, yourself getting out of it. But another part of that is also, it can be quite familiar. And, you know, again, coming back to the nervous system, things that are familiar are safe. So yeah. we, we, we tend to stay in things that are familiar, even if we know that they're not helpful for us because it's safe and safe is certain. And then we feel, yeah, it, the safety, I think is the main thing. Um, and anything out of that is, is unknown and therefore uncertain and therefore potentially unsafe. <clears throat> so it's quite a natural human response for things like that. Um, and then the other thing is, it depends. I think everybody's so unique, so I don't like blanketing, you know, experiences at all. But just having that, like I said, that familiarity, you, then you start maybe, like, I know somebody I'm working with who is um, kind of identifies as a sad person. So now that they, they don't really want to change that in some ways, they do, but they don't, or they're afraid of what that looks like, or even trying to implement some coping strategies because, but I've just always been sad, this is me. And I think, again, it comes back to kind of a rigid view of yourself or it could be worse. You don't believe you're worthy of anything else. So I'm sorry, there's so many things that could come out of that. But yeah. um, I think a lot of people do feel that way, especially if you can't see the future or if you don't know what the future could bring. Um, that comes down to existentialism as well and the meaning of life. And I think um, this whole pandemic has forced a lot of people to really slow down and see things that they might not have wanted to see or look at. You know, it's easy to stay busy. It's easy to kind of leave your home if, if the home, this issues at home. And usually there are issues at home uh, because you're with a person that isn't like you, um, you know, completely different view and you are very close and intimate, especially if it's a partner. There's always going to be issues with partners, um, even the healthiest of relationship. But you can't just go and avoid and you know, um, pretend that it didn't happen or push it under the carpet. So you're kind of forced to face all these things. And I think a lot of people are feeling very overwhelmed because they don't have the tools for that now. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think it is tricky. And I think, again, it comes down to also self-compassion of just recognizing that it's, life is a struggle. And Susan David talks about that as well, again, of the, the she's got a lovely quote. I can't think of it right now, but it's all about the sort of, um, the, the beauty of world is so is so fragile. The fragility of the world is um, is what is beautiful, but it is so fragile. And it's like recognizing that that is just as important as sort of happiness or contentment. It's also the recognizing that the sadness in the world as well is sort of just as important and it makes up the beauty of it too. Um, yeah, I don't know, Tuff, do you want me to say anything more with regards to what you're saying? with the unworthiness i think almost powerlessness can also kick in as well as if yeah. like, and i yeah. think you're saying like um when i had seen like obviously with you helping clients feel heard that can also give them a bit of power back because losing a voice for example mm. they feel powerless 
themselves. Absolutely. And not having a say in something or mm. um, which, yeah, which that disempowerment can really take a toll. That can just remove confidence and just seeing that in someone's body language yeah. um, is, is quite fascinating. Definitely. And, and you know, it's interesting when we, when we start feeling really low or even highly anxious, we start isolating ourselves more as well. So we kind of push ourselves away. We don't feel we have the energy to engage with somebody else, or we don't want to show vulnerability um, because we don't feel that they're going to hold space for us or they're going to judge us. And then the more isolated you, you, the more you isolate yourself, the, the, the sadder you feel, the more depressed you feel and the more lonely you feel. And loneliness is something that is really, really important to acknowledge so that we don't slip into that slippery slope of loneliness because that just kind of fuels de depressive states more as well. So it's about connection again. It's about having somebody that you know that you can talk to, even if you don't want to talk specifically or disclose everything, but it's about just having somebody else help you kind of co-regulate how you're feeling as well again. Um, and if, if you can have somebody, even if it's one person or even an idea of a person, but having an actual person is quite helpful. Um, that can help you try and like sort of pull you out of that space um, when you're feeling particularly low as well. I think, I think the, the, the better goal to happiness is developing resiliency and agility because that ultimately is much more sustainable than, you know, people talk about this happiness it almost makes me cringe nowadays because I know not saying that there, uh, you know, there's something wrong in, in saying that, but I, I cringe because it's not a sustainable, first of all, how do you measure happiness mm. and how do you sustain it in a world that is constantly changing? Mm. And, you know, my, my mentor would define samsara is having your happiness tied up with external factors right because the reality is that's fraught with danger and what we need to be looking at as an individual is how do we become more agile and less sticky in mm. terms of to the you know to the things that the thoughts the emotions the feelings that typically bind us and i think that's the the greater proposition and for me that's that's one of my uh, I suppose guiding true norths, right? In terms of where a significant amount of my interest lays in terms of my personal evolution is how do I continue to reduce subjectivity for one, mm. live life from a more objective place where, you know, I'm looking at a rope and I don't think it's a snake, <laughs> yes. it's a rope. And, you know, there's an interesting story behind that one, right? But the, the reality is, is that you know, we all have causes and conditions in the form of how we grew up. There's complexities within that. There's complexities within the baggage that we've accumulated in our lives. And it's like, well, what are the tools I need to drop that right here, right now to see, to see clearly? And I think that you're helping people do that. And that's, that's fantastic, right? That's, that's, that's fantastic. So, um, yeah, I mean, look, it, it's it's been an amazing, amazing chat. Um, it's, I think personally, we could sit here and deep dive for another two yeah. hours. What do you think, Toph? <laughs> Easy. Uh, I mean, I really do love the psychology of 
mm. why we do things and what makes us ticks and even what makes us triggered as well. Yes. Yeah. And each, each person is different. So that's what I'd encourage people is, you know, you're all so unique. So I don't have, that's why I use so many different concepts and theories because how can you get or expect somebody to just fit into one way? You know, um, it's all about you trying to become sort of your own experts and understanding yourself. And um, RJ, like what you're saying, it's about awareness, awareness in a way that is non-judgmental. And I love, um, I'm also... Um, I've read Man's Search for Meaning, Victor Frank. Oh, yeah. Victor Frank. Yeah. yeah. It's another one that's just been published, actually, one of his uh, writings. Um, I think it's Living a Life Despite Adversity or something like that. It's the title. I've still, it's, on, it's in my audiobook list <laughs> that I'm busy. <clears throat> but um, you know how, you know, between a stimulus um, and response, there's a space and there's a space to be able to have that freedom in how you want to, how you can choose to respond. And of course, that's easier said than done, but it is, I think, our own responsibilities to understand what, what, is, what makes us um, triggered, feel triggered or what upsets us while we do the things we do and then to try and connect with others um, so that we can try and help understand them as well. I would suggest that the goal of this whole space is to widen that gap, to increase mm. that space between action and response. Mm. And I think that's the whole goal of this movement, right? That we're all engaged in, that we call personal growth, is how do mm. we expand that space to, to be, uh, you know, uh, where we're actually operating in real time, you know, where we're yes. able to actually not pull the trigger on that, fuck you, you know what I mean? Or, or whatever, <laughs> the language. But yeah. I, I think that's yeah. what it, this whole thing is about. It's okay, well, how do you widen that space of response time to the extent that we're not actually being guided by the causes and conditions of our past? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, I was just trying to take that in. I know sometimes trying to process it can take some time. Um, uh, Vic Victor Frankl, he um, he was the one back in was it the Holocaust camps. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. He survived. Yeah, yeah I know um, a lot of like Tony Robbins and a lot of big names always speak about his stuff. How mm. even a guy that's going through um, very tumultuous times like that has able to found purpose, and that does. That's so invigorating to hear, like, and not to use comparison, but to use perspective. Um, thinking of someone like that is able to do that. It's like, well, if anyone can go through that, if mm. someone can go through that, anyone can go through whatever they're dealing. Um, Absolutely. And the, the whole, I think, speaking on the whole happiness thing before, I think happy, I think Jay Shetty said this, where happiness is a byproduct. Uh, absolutely. You know, I wrote that down. I was going to mention that earlier. hundred percent. It is. <laughs> I think what's more important is being grateful. And yeah. that, that's a little bit more quantifiable of what RJ was talking about measuring something mm. because the happiness, it can be quite thin or it can be quite thick, but I think what's more important is being grateful of, the things we have, not we're missing, than what we're missing. And that removes that comparison, which I think is almost a cancer in itself. Def definitely. And you know, when people have this sort of ongoing journey,
journey of being happy. It, it's an elusive thing. It, what, what makes you happy? And we don't really know. You kind of have this idea, maybe. And a lot of the time it's materialistic. But then you know what it's like as soon as you get something that, you know, that stops shining, you know, it gets dull and then you want something else. And that's not happiness. Happiness is a byproduct of doing things that are meaningful for you. And you know that by recognizing what your values are, um, who are the people that are around you? Who do you feel safe with? Who do you feel connected to? Who do you feel you belong to? Um, Dan Siegel recent, well, I watched something the other night and he went to Namibia and he was talking to an African tribe there and they're, you know, they've got famine and disease and drought and they all seemed happy though. And he said, he um, spoke to his translator and said, can you ask them why are they so happy? <laughs> and um, the, the translator did and they came, the, the, the um, chief of the tribe was saying, we all belong to each other and that's that's the most important thing so just belonging just knowing that we belong that's what makes them happy um and that's why they can overcome all that adversity that they're dealing with just because they feel like they belong so sometimes i have to tell you that i feel really really petty when in the western world we have a lot of these conversations and we're so caught up in our feelings and we have so much and then you know when you bring that up right like i almost sometimes feel ashamed because of that I, I understand that some of this seems to be a symptom of western society where we're all rolling around in shiny cars heaters in the house yeah. You know, and it, it's almost, it, it kind of, that also makes me cringe sometimes because it's like, you know, it's what first world problems. And I'm like, you know, how much of this is really, you know, a creation of, of the way that we live our lives when you, when you frame it that way, and you know, you, 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 you're looking at other cultures where their, their view of happiness and their perspective on what that actually means is so mm. different. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I'm South African. I don't I know. know if you knew, but <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, a lot of experiences with different African um, cultures and um, where I come from, there's um, a saying and it's called Ubuntu. And it's like, I am me because you are you. It's like we're connected. I see you. And it's all again about that belonging and connection. And I think in the Western world, We've been conditioned to believe that I am important. I am important, not we. We're and separate. so we said we're silos. We're all silos trying to connect, wanting connection, but can't, don't know how to, don't, don't feel we should, you know? So I think that you're right. Like, I think, I don't think, I don't think, I don't like saying first world problems because I think everybody has, I know what you meant by that, but I, but I just wanted to say, you know, I've had a lot of clients going, oh, you know, I don't think I should be here, but you know, they're starving kids in Africa. And it's like, no, your, your feelings and, you know, are valid. You deserve, everyone deserves a space. Everyone deserves a space, a holding space, everyone, um, no matter, you know, who you are, but, and, and, you know, I encourage that, but, um, but it's about, it's about the, the disconnect causes us to be so unhappy yeah well on that note, do you want to do you want to uh do you want to um maybe jump into the the final questions 
Yeah, absolutely. I was just about to go into that. Um, what I was going to say was thank you so much for the very insightful and therapeutic chat, Sharon. <laughs> Sorry, but I do love this. Like these are the conversations I yearn for just because it's just mortal. It just kind of like we do this, like we go under the surface as well. Um, so thank you so much for sharing. Would just like to know where people can um, can find you if there's anything that you would like to promote. Um, well, uh, I mean, they can just Google Sharon Draper psychology. Um, yeah. I'm based in Sydney. There's also another Sharon Draper who is also an author. <laughs> She's yeah, an American. Yeah. <laughs> She's Sharon M. Draper. So that's not me. I often get tagged in her books. I'm like, oh. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> No, I've, got, I've made contact with her and told her too. And she's like, oh, that's okay. <laughs> but um, I, I am in the process of um, creating um, some YouTube videos and it's called The Life Manual. We're just still not, nothing's up and running yet. But if anyone would like to, will be interested in just getting short videos on insightful information, um, I'd encourage them to maybe follow me on Instagram first and then I'll eventually be able to show the next you know, platform that I've got in the running. Um, but it's Sharon Draper, psychologist and Instagram, if, if anyone would like to. Okay. We'll yeah. put that in the show notes when we uh, release. Um, and I guess the final question that we usually ask, well, I guess, um, Sharon, what is the number one piece of game-changing advice that you would give to the next generation? I had a feeling you'd be asking me something like this, but I wish I'd given it more thought. <laughs> <laughs> We don't want anyone to be prepared when we ask that. <laughs> Very loaded question, don't worry. <laughs> do, you, do you know, I know what it is, though, actually. I mean, because I see it all the time. And it might sound quite basic, but you'll probably see, you know, you, you probably have heard what I've been saying throughout today. It's take the time to understand yourself. I think that that is a game changer because the more you can look at yourself in with compassion though you've got to understand that the first step is always awareness so not to kind of get stuck on something bad you did where i used to agonize over things that i said you know to somebody and i remember once even saying to a friend i'm so sorry i said that thing and they're like what are you talking about <laughs> and i agonized for two weeks over oh my gosh they think i'm such an idiot but i think the important thing what i'd really say is take the time to learn about yourself journal what you're feeling so that you can have an understanding because the more awareness you bring to your life, the more you're able to see things in a different way and not get stuck on those rigid thing, um, thoughts um, and, and yeah, behaviors really. So I'd, I'd encourage that awareness. Well, Sharon, I, I would really, uh, I really want to, to thank you for, for your time. This is one of our probably longer conversations. I think Tope, you and I, tend to be biased to these types of chats. And for whatever reason, it always seems like I'm deep diving with South Africans. I don't, I don't know what it is, but the last five years, every person that I see in the deep, I don't know what it is in your water out there, but every conversation I ever have with a South African is heavy. It's always heavy, but um, maybe it's just a coincidence, but um, really, really want to appreciate you uh, for taking the time to talk to us. I actually will be in touch because I, I think I have some things that I, I'd like to talk to you about in terms of uh, a couple of the people that I'm working with that are that um that need some support that I think you could give them. Mm. So I'll reach out to you, reach out to you offline. But yeah, we just really want to thank you for your time, Sharon, and have a beautiful weekend.
Thank you. Oh, it's been wonderful chatting to both of you. I appreciate the questions as well in the chat. Yeah. Thank you so much, yeah? Thank we'll you. appreciate it. Thank you so much, Sharon. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.